HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Castor and Pollux, maker of America's number one organic pet food, Organics. Look for their newest line, Pristine, the only complete line of pet food made with responsibly sourced ingredients. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org slash pets. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Hey, hey, you're listening to Eat Your Words on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Kathy Airway. It is the end of, Dece- of October, and Halloween is actually two days away. But I'm afraid to say that uh, today's episode might actually be truly scary. Um, nowadays, uh, with today's uh, Environmental Protection Protection Agency, we know that you know climate change is not going to be high on their agenda for this administration. But also, lately, they've been... Uh, you know, concerns circulating around the news that, you know, maybe given the policies and attitudes of today's EPA or lack thereof of policy, um, we might actually, like, are we going to see human health being threatened? So best to arm ourselves with knowledge. And today I have on a guest who has written a book called Whitewash, the story of a weed killer, cancer, and the corruption of science. Uh, it is Carrie Gilliam joining us on the phone. Hi, Carrie. Hi, Kathy. Thanks so much for joining. And Great can, to be here. And congrats on this book. Now, Carrie, you've been a longtime reporter for Reuters, um, covering international news, and you've been reporting uh, for the last 25 years or more about food and agriculture. So this is um, this book, why did you decide to focus on the weed killer um, that is covered in this book? So, yeah, so I have covered corporate America for more than 25 years as a journalist about 20 years ago. About 1998 is when I actually started covering food and ag. Mm -hmm. And Reuters assigned me basically to learn everything that I could and communicate that, of course, to the world about these big companies that were making such uh, changes in, in how our food was grown. And that was Monsanto and Dow and DuPont and Syngenta. 
And, of course, in covering Monsanto, you can't cover Monsanto and not write about, you know, Roundup, their uh, global dominant weed-killing product, uh, which the main ingredient of that is glyphosate. So, and as many of your listeners might know, glyphosate and Roundup have become really controversial because the, the use is so pervasive. It's in our food, it's in our water, it's in our soil, and, and in our own bodies, mm-hmm. commonly found now in urine tests. So, you know, and there are cancer concerns, an array of human health impacts from this pervasive use of this pesticide. And it seemed to me a really important, uh, you know, issue to to bring to people mm-hmm. in this era where we have cancers and, and a rising rates of disease and problems in our children and, and our vulnerable population. So, you know, it, it impacts all of us. Everybody who eats really is impacted by this chemical. Yeah. And what's so alarming from reading your book is also that it's it's not just in in what might be expected. Um, it's in things like cereal. Residue just gets everywhere, it seems, with this yeah, widespread I mean, use. Glyphosate, glyphosate, as I said, is the world's most widely used herbicide, and it's very commonly used in farming and food production. It's used in over a hundred production of over a hundred different food crops, and mm-hmm. consequently, consequently, residues are left. In our food, you know, it's been found, as you said, in cereals and snack products. It's been found in baby oatmeal. So it's not just apples, yeah. By the FDA, for instance, in honey, even organic honey. It really is pervasive in our world today. Right. So let's break this down a little bit. Um, Glyphosate. You write that, um, you know, we've forgotten, we may have forgotten the lessons of Rachel Carson's Silent Spring. Um, That was in response to DDT. which was found to be very harmful to human health. But where is the, yeah, where is the the outrage now um, with regards to other potentially harmful chemicals? Um, Do you think that, uh, well, do you think that actually now, since you mentioned there is a lot of public concern, was there any like watershed moment that brought to light um, a curiosity and concern and fears of this chemical? Of glyphosate, yes, of Mm -hmm. course, and and that would be the 2015 decision by the International Agency for Research on Cancer. That group is part of the World Health Organization. Uh, It's top scientists from around the world who are independent, who have no ties to industry or, you know, no no dog in the fight, no money to be gained, uh, who come together to look at different chemicals and their cancer potential. And they looked at glyphosate and all this research that had been done over many, many years epidemiology, toxicology, and found that it it should be classified, they said, as a probable human carcinogen. They couldn't say definitely that it was a carcinogen, mm-hmm. but probably was, is what they determined. That's pretty, that's, that's not good. <laughs> it, it's not good. And of course, <clears throat> since then, um, you know, people, they found the most linkage to non-Hodgkin lymphoma, which Mm -hmm. is a type of cancer that has been on the rise around the world, particularly in North America. And since that decision, we've seen thousands of people sue Monsanto, Mm -hmm. alleging that Roundup has given them non-Hodgkin lymphoma and that Monsanto knew of the dangers and covered it up. And and we've seen a lot of evidence come out through those lawsuits now, internal Monsanto documents that are really pretty damaging because they do seem indicate a lot of secrets have been kept around Denial. this chemical. So that's the other thing. This book is as such a such a 
you know, thrilling sort of um, expose. It reminded me a bit when I was reading it of um, one of the first books that sort of opened my eyes to the larger workings of the food system, but also the sort of inner secretive workings of corporations. That book was Fast Food Nation. Um, right. And those issues had to do with E. coli, which, you know, was very, it was a mysterious sort of thing happening. Um, You begin sort of your your tale um, with with respect to the the dangers or potential dangers um, with the story of a farmer. And his name was Jack, I can't remember, McCall. McCall, McCall, yeah. So he had no history of cancer in his family. He was fit. He didn't smoke. And he came down with this non-Hodgkin's lymphoma cancer that nobody could figure out. Why? Right, right. He and he had a had he and his wife had a beautiful little farm in Cambria, California, where they grew you know citrus fruits and avocados, and he took them to farmers markets. And he had been very much a hippie, you know, in his day. He installed solar panels. You know, he wanted the most natural uses um, on his farm and did not want any pesticides, but he had been told Roundup was so safe, he felt it was so safe, that that's what he would use to try to control weeds uh, and use that routinely and extensively. And first the family dog developed lymphoma and then Jack. Oh my he died a pretty, you know, a pretty um, horrible death the day after Christmas in 2015. And so I opened the, the story with, you know, him and his family and, and sort of the aftermath of that death. And But, you know, again, he's only one of, you know, thousands Many of people other, that are yeah. now alleging that this caused their cancers. Right. And, and we're seeing that, that happening more and more. And um, it's it's tragic. It's, it's terrible to, to hear about. Um, it's interesting, though. I didn't realize that. At first, Roundup, which is glyphosate's um, market name, um, was intended, it was marketed as a really safe alternative. Like people advertised it as, or Monsanto, that is, advertised it as something that was safe enough or as safe as table salt, safe enough to drink right. even. <laughs> right. They, is, they correct me sometimes when I say safe as table salt. They say no safer than table say, salt. Oh. So, right. It's been marketed as extraordinarily safe, and it's been embraced by farmers, as I said, around the world. Because, it, And indeed, it is, it is in, a, in an immediate fashion, safer than some other weed killers that have been used on the market. Others are extraordinarily toxic, mm-hmm. some of them. You know, so much so if you get a few drops in your tongue, you're going to die in a few weeks. Glyphosate is not that way. It's okay. been much safer. It's found to be very effective. But what we've seen in the research is that over the long-term exposure, both dermal exposure and, you know, there are possibly indications of dietary. We don't have as much evidence on that. But, you know, dermal or inhalation. Uh, could be damaging. And as I said, epidemiology and toxicology, um, you know, the body of evidence shows a real reason to be concerned. And that's why the International Agency for Research on Cancer, you know, concluded as it did uh, that it should at least, people should at least be aware and be warned that this could be a probable human carcinogen. But Monsanto and the chemical industry has fought tooth and nail against that and are trying to discredit that classification and and they're suing the state of California because California has classified it as a known carcinogen as well. So, mm-hmm. uh, and they're threatening to sue Europe right now because the uh, European Parliament uh, has pro- pro- voted for a ban on glyphosate, um, and, and the European Commission is dis- discussing that right now. So, 
you know, it's, a re- as I said, a really hot issue and a hot mm-hmm. global debate. Let's talk about how much power Monsanto yield, uh, you know, ha- commands over the food system. Um, how do they have so much money and resources? How much money are they raking in here? <laughs> well, Monsanto itself, you know, I, the last I'd have to look up again, it's around $14, $15 billion a year in revenues. Uh, and, of course, they, they have a pot of money that comes in, about 25% of that, from glyphosate herbicides. But then they have a big block of their revenues that are seeds that mm-hmm. are genetically altered to be sprayed with glyphosate. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's another big block of their revenues. So glyphosate is really, really critical uh, for the money coming in, mm-hmm. the billions flowing into Monsanto. And they, you know, as the documents show, as I laid out in Whitewash, they have done everything they can to protect that and wielded a lot of influence you know, over the EPA and within the EPA to keep this product, you know, protected and declared safe and on the market. But how did they become, uh, how did glyphosate become such a widespread chemical in such a short amount of time in the first place? Well, usage, it was introduced in 1974. The, The Monsanto patent was to expire in the year 2000. So, in the mid-1990s, Monsanto introduced its genetically engineered crops. And these, as I said, were designed to be to sprayed with, directly yeah. with glyphosate. And they tied them together, and they called them Roundup Ready crops and ra- to be used Roundup with Roundup. Mm-hmm. And it was a system, and, and it was brilliant because mm-hmm. use of glyphosate surged. Monsanto market share surged. And so over the next 20 years, you saw glyphosate use go from about 40 million pounds a year to close to where we are now, 300 million pounds a year. That's incredible. Uh, And it was, you know, driven by the introduction of these GMO crops that were designed to be used with glyphosate. Right. So now everyone's in this system where they have to buy the seeds as well as the the herbicide that goes with these seeds um, from the same company. Which is pretty pretty brilliant. Yeah, Monsanto (laughs) has a lot of market dominance over the seed. It's the largest seed company now in the world, obviously, and they they, farmers tell us that it's very hard to find, you know, non GMO seeds, non glyphosate tolerant seeds. Right. Do people have any sort of, um, I guess, misgivings, or um, are they wary of a company that has that has in the past? been infamous for such controversies um, as DDT as well as Agent Orange. Right, right. I mean, sure, you have a lot of critics out there and you have people who can point to PCBs, uh, Mm -hmm. (laughs) which uh, Monsanto's, you know, argued for many, many years were very, very safe. And of course, you know, they've ended up paying out hundreds of millions of dollars in damages uh, related to, you know, the impacts of these harmful PCBs. And many people think that what we're going to see with Roundup and glyphosate will be a similar situation to not only that, but what we've seen in the tobacco industry, Mm -hmm. where a corporation will declare the safety of its product, you know, as long as it can until the weight of evidence, you know, shows that that is not actually the case. Wow. A long way to go. Um, We're going to cut to a quick little commercial break, and we'll be right back chatting more with Carrie Gilliam. (music) 
This episode is brought to you by Castor and Pollux, maker of America's number one organic pet food, Organics. You put a lot of care and thought into what you eat. After all, you're a food radio listener. That thoughtfulness goes hand in paw with how you feed your pets. Purposeful pet food doesn't happen by accident. Castor and Pollock scours the earth to carefully select the best organic and responsibly sourced ingredients. New Pristine from Castor and Pollock is the only complete line of pet food made with ingredients that are responsibly raised, caught, or grown. Feed your dog or cat the new standard, like grass-fed beef, wild-caught fish, and vegetables grown without synthetic fertilizers or chemical pesticides. Pristine from Castor and Pollock. Purposeful pet food. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org slash pets. All right, we're back chatting more with author Carrie Gilliam. She has written Whitewash, the story of a weed killer, cancer, and the corruption of science. So, Carrie, um, in the chapter called Spinning the Science, you outline how Monsanto has very effectively sort of gone into cahoots with certain journalisms or speakers to discredit some science um, and, and other strategies, I guess, to help discredit studies that they, they found were unfavorable. Um, I'm curious, though, what was your experience like writing about these topics for so long and in writing this book? Right. Was it, well, did you feel like, <laughs> <laughs> are you okay? Are you being threatened? <clears throat> I mean, it, I, people, you know, or I've been called just in the last week a terrorist, um, oh, no. you know, an effing menace to society, uh, you know, all, all sorts of lovely By names and who? accusations and, you know, lies have been told of all sorts of lies, you know, that I've paid my publisher to write the book. Um, I, I can't even think of them all, but... Um, yeah, I mean, as a journalist at Reuters, I definitely felt the pressure from Monsanto. And it was, you know, as I said, I've covered corporations for, you know, a long time. And so I'm used to, you know, people at very powerful businesses pushing back on stories that, that they don't like. But Monsanto, I can definitely say, applied the pressure and the arm twisting to a greater extent than I'd ever seen wow. or known before. Um, and and after, you know, at, at the tail end of my reporting with Reuters, and then when I joined two years ago, this nonprofit, U.S. Right to Know, and we really focused on just doing Freedom of Information Act requests. Mm-hmm. All of these documents that have come out through that, really, it's revelatory. I mean, it's jaw-dropping to see the extent that Monsanto and the chemical industry goes to to control media, to to put forward scientists and others who look to be independent when actually they're not independent at all, um, when actually they're being directed and many times even having their articles and blogs and communications written for them by chemical industry PR agents. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, this stuff sounds like it would be in some sort of sci-fi conspiracy movie, but it's really happening. And we see it, you know, we're not... This isn't our opinion. This is from Monsanto's own internal communications, where they lay out their strategies wow. and, and how to and how to do this and how to basically fool the public and fool policymakers. And it's uh, as I said, I mean, so, it's brilliant, it's ingenious, but it's certainly not in the public's best interest. Uh huh. And you've been covering this for a long time, corporations, and you just said right. you saw jaw-dropping revelations. I'm curious, what what surprised you most? Well, I mean, I guess the boldness of the deceit is is 
the lack of subtlety in the deceit. You see, you see Monsanto PR people talking about um, setting up, you know, organizations that will appear to be science-based organizations that will communicate independent, you know, opinion and analysis to the public. And you see them talking about setting it up, but not wanting anybody to know that Monsanto's behind it. And here's, you know, a list of targets you know, that we can go after, scientists, journalists, others, you know, who write critical information about our products. That's so personal. Um, I mean, yeah. I mean, you see that, and you see them drafting, mm-hmm. uh, you know, articles for people who appear to be independent to put in magazines like Forbes, you know, or other places. And and they, they write it, and then it goes in under the, the name and the picture of this supposedly independent scientist, and it was written you see word for word by the PR companies for Monsanto. So to me, that's jaw dropping. Like maybe I'm still too naive, but that to me is, is that's, that's fake news basically. Um, so what, you know, yeah, what can we do as readers or maybe what can journalists do, um, to help distinguish or what can readers do to help distinguish between what's, what's a paid off expert and what's not. Yeah. I, you know, I think it's really, really hard. I mean, the groups that we've identified, Genetic Literacy Project, Academics Review, you know, those sorts of, of groups who appear to be independent um, are, are clearly not. I mean, they're listed in Monsanto papers as partners, you know, mm-hmm. and, and we've seen like, like Academics Review where they talk about setting it up and not letting anybody know that. Um, but I think as, an, as just an average reader, if, it would be really, really difficult to know. And that's unfortunate. <laughs> um, you have to, I think, rely on established, you know, news outlets like the New York Times, perhaps, and mm-hmm. The Guardian, and, you know, reporters that have been covering this for a long time that are giving you both sides. You know, mm-hmm. you, you know if you only see one side of the story, you're probably not getting the true story. That's a good point. You know, the, there are always risks and rewards. There's always balance um, that, that should be presented. Mm-hmm. And, uh but when I was at Reuters, I mean, I was very definitively told that by the industry that, that balance was, was not valid, that it wasn't right to prevent, present oh. both sides because only the chemical industry side was the correct one, was hmm. their position. Wow. Um, so who are the people that are criticizing you as a threat to society and so forth? <laughs> is, is this well, part of a smear campaign I, or what? So, you can you can see it on on social media. It's sort of the the social media assault, uh, mm-hmm. you know, on Twitter and Facebook and other places. And you can see individuals who we know through the documents are tied to Monsanto and have received funding okay. and received direction. And then you see them say, like for instance, they recently did an attack on the Amazon reader review page for my book, mm-hmm. and they laid okay. out what they wanted to do on Twitter, and then they, you know, went onto Amazon and tried to tear down the reviews. So, and, and, you know, I'm just one little person. They've, but they've done this to, to other scientists, to other journalists. They did a you know, terrible thing on Eric Lipton of the New York Times just last week, really? uh, an article, uh, you know. Attacking, yeah. Yeah, it's an effort to silence and discredit legitimate, you know, questions they're being asked about their products. I hate to ask it, but... Um so we know that you are a, a, a legitimate reporter. What are some good <laughs> sides? <laughs> you mentioned, you know, what Monsanto's. Are what? what are some good sides to this debate about Monsanto, the weed killer, cancer, and the corruption of science? 
Right. Uh, what's the well, other side of the I story? Mean, <clears throat> as I said, I mean, glyphosate, it really is, um, I think, a hard situation um, because glyphosate, as I said, it, it has sort of supplanted more dangerous chemicals and it has reduced tillage, um, you know, which is hard on the environment. It, is, it has had environmental benefits and it definitely helped farmers in, in field management. Okay. Um, I like to say, though, you know, too much of a good thing isn't always a good thing, right? Because what we've seen is this overuse of this chemical. Weeds aren't dying now when you spray them with glyphosate. So farmers are having to spray more and more and more. And now they're combining it with dicamben 2,4-D, which are older and maybe more dangerous chemicals. And, you know, so it's this cycle. It's this pesticide treadmill. um, And you're seeing loss of biodiversity. You're seeing degradation of the soil health. Uh, So there are a lot of implications of this pesticide dependence that are not good. And typically what we only hear are the benefits because that's what the Who's, corporations want I, I hear to this hear. a lot. Who's going to feed the world or, you know, how are we going to make enough food? This is the way. Right. That would be there. Right. Well, and of course the answer is we, we were feeding, you know, we were all eating before glyphosate was introduced in the 1970s, you know, and, and we will eat again. Uh-huh. <laughs> the, the question is, you know, do we want to be contaminating our soil and pouring ever higher levels of pesticides on it to the, to the extent that we're having ever higher residues of pesticides in our foods? You know, medical professionals around the world say these pesticide residues are contributing to rising rates of disease uh, and illness in our children and elderly and other susceptible populations. So, you know, it's sure, maybe it's a trade-off. Do we want easier and cheap food? in exchange for rising rates of disease and illness. You know, I, mm-hmm. that's a public policy decision. Right. You know, for my family, the answer is no. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk for a second about butterflies. Um, okay. So you, you might see like a monarch butterfly standing in as the symbol for, for groups and campaigns um, that are critical of uh, glyphosate. Why is that? <laughs> Well, the monarch butterfly, we've seen a pretty dramatic um, demise in the population of the monarch butterfly, which is, you know, sort of an iconic, um, you know, <laughs> iconic animal or it's an insect, idyllic, I guess, yes. for, for North America. Mm-hmm. And uh, glyphosate has has led to the demise because it's wiped out milkweed, which is which is sort of the nutritional base for the young monarch. And monarchs are important pollinator. Uh, they're important to our biodiversity. No one disputes the glyphosate is the reason for the demise of the monarch. Monsanto itself has been trying to figure out ways to try to rectify that and turn that situation around. So is our USDA. Um, you know, so it's just one sort of sad, you know, side effect of mm-hmm. this pervasiveness of this pesticide. What else do you hope that we can take away from reading more and educating ourselves about this? Um, is there any practical steps like, I don't know, washing our fruits and vegetables more often? Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I had one FDA um, guy tell me, he said, always peel your apples. <laughs> no, I, I don't, uh, you know, the, these pesticide residues I definitely didn't do that. Know, can't, they can't be washed off. They do penetrate the skin. They are in the meat of the fruit. They're in the vegetables. I mean, organic has less pesticides typically in, in tests okay. that are done. Um, but it's not, it's not a perfect system. It's not, you know, 100% um, answer there for you. 
we, you know, for me, I, I think we just want to be educated and informed as best we can so that we can take positions mm-hmm. in our in our home, in our community, and in our public policy stance with our leaders in Washington mm-hmm. as exactly. to what we want to support. You know, do we want to support these pesticide-dependent systems, or do we want to look, you know, for more alternative and sustainable measures? Mm-hmm. And so where do we stand right now with glyphosate? What what can we do um, at this point, there's a lot of lawsuits well, the, back and forth yeah, on both sides. Yeah, I mean, the EPA is currently, you know, supposed to be releasing a, a draft risk assessment. They were supposed to release it two years ago. It's been delayed. They're still sitting on it. Uh, so you can contact, you know, legislators mm-hmm. and, and lawmakers. But a lot of people, what I'm seeing in communities around the country, are taking it small. They're going to their city councils and saying, we don't want this stuff spraying our parks where our kids play, you yeah. know, or their homeowners associations. We don't want this on our, you know, islands and around our, our lawns anymore because mm-hmm. it's not worth it. So, you know, it depends on everybody's own position. Um, but there are things you can do. It's mainly educating yourself, talking to others, and then deciding the best path that you want to pursue and then pursuing it, right? Mm-hmm. Exerting that pressure and speaking yeah. out. <laughs> uh, no, <laughs> you sound a little skeptical. There's definitely a lot of pressure, but we're seeing communities. I mean, we are seeing them be successful, and they're rolling back not just glyphosate, but other pesticides that are really being used just to keep things looking nice. You uh-huh. know, people are starting to say, maybe we don't need that cosmetic perfection. You it know, maybe logs. we'd rather mm-hmm. protect our kids. Mm-hmm. You know, a little more. So. Those are things to think about. And does our purchasing power matter here, too? Should we buy from farmers who say they don't use this um, and demand to buy, you know, Well, yeah, you're seeing a lot of that. I mean, you're seeing a lot of food companies now, and I was at a meeting with food companies in June. They're aware that consumers are concerned about pesticides. They're aware of the health implications of pesticides in our foods, and they're moving to try to source food ingredients that are free or have reduced pesticide levels. So consumer knowledge and consumer purchasing power affects the food companies and Mm -hmm. their actions. I mean, you know, yes. I mean, consumers are the ultimate uh, people in control here if they want to wield it. So let's hopefully scare Monsanto and other (laughs) chemical companies um, with a threat to to their business. Well, this is one of the reasons they really didn't want labeling of mm-hmm. these products. Yeah. You know, they they don't want the consumers to have informed choices, mm-hmm. uh, which is what labeling would provide. So, right, right. Uh, it's an ongoing story, and I'm sure you know the the ending of whitewash will hopefully make readers continue to stay stay abreast of those developments. And uh, yeah. do you think you'll have to write a sequel at one point, or? <laughs> I've actually already started on the sequel. No, that's great. uh, Fantastic. If I can find time to write it, that'll be great. The the revelations coming out in in this lawsuit, these Mm -hmm. lawsuits really really are eye-opening and really important, I think, for public policy in the long run. That's fantastic. Well, thank you so much for for keeping on top of this and and sharing the stories that you found with us. Um, Thank you for having me here. Yeah, that's about all the time we have for today, but definitely continue to follow Carrie Gilliam on Twitter and check out Whitewash, um, just out from Island Press. It's it's a good read. It's a really fun, I know that it sounds depressing, but it's actually a very gripping and fascinating read. So thanks again, Carrie. 
Thank you. And thanks, everyone at Heritage. We'll see you next week on Eat Your Words. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.